<laughs> okay. Uh, before I do the regular lesson, I, I, I periodically uh, will get something in, the, in current events that I believe needs to be spoken about. And this happened this week from cr the Christian Post magazine, uh, in which they, they talked about a recent survey that was done uh, by uh, Lifeway. And, you know, Lifeway is an arm of the Baptist Convention. And they surveyed 3,000 evangelicals. And I want you to listen to what I'm going to say. 3,000 self-professed evangelicals. And what they found when they released this is that a majority, a majority of the evangelicals surveyed believe that God accepts worship of all religions. A majority of evangelicals believe that God accepts worship of all religions. Obviously, Buddhists, Muslims. Uh, it's extraordinary that, that, uh, that the evangelicals would slide like this. It was a majority. Um, and to me, it's very disturbing. Um, and I believe that God has given me this platform uh, that now goes out to 50 states and I think there's an urgent need for people uh, in America to hear the state of our theology, the state of Christianity. I I really believe that what we're seeing is the secularization of religion. All right, that's what you're seeing, folks. Just like you're seeing America is no longer a Christian nation, it's a post-Christian nation, and you see that in every, every time there's some event or some hearing and you see what goes on. Our country is not a Christian country anymore. Yes, there are Christians, but it is not guided by Christian principles. And so you see it now. It's, it's unbelievable that we would find this in the evangelical community, that God accepts religions from all different ways, that there's a number of ways to God? Where are we going? Where are we going if we don't understand this fundamental principle? Um, and here's the thing. What, what happens is, is that much of this is being taught from the pulpits. I've, uh, as part of this article that I saw, it referenced a Baptist, remember this, a Baptist minister in Harlem that's got 10,000 members in his congregation who preaches this, that there's a number of ways to God. It's not just Christianity. God's not just a Christian God. Can you imagine? I mean, this is what happens when we create our own gospel, when it's our own opinion, instead of rely, relying on the Bible. I, I was so disturbed uh, by this that I wanted to make sure I, I voiced uh, my voice on it, because I believe people need to hear this. And I want to say this to people who are listening to me on the radio right now. If you're in a church, if you're in a church in which you are being taught that there are a number of ways to God, all right, get out. Amen. Get out. Get out. Uh, and I'm saying this in love. I'm saying this in love. Because here's the point, folks. Uh, it's not an act of kindness to say to people, well, there's, there's, I'm sure God will find a way to accept you. That's not an act of kindness. 
all right? That's not an act of kindness. None of us want to be able to, to pronounce judgment, and we're not pronouncing judgment. All we're doing is citing the Bible. And I want to repeat again this very famous verse is that John 14, verse 6, which I read at every funeral service that I do. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I had a dear friend who considers himself a Christian, uh, who is a former Catholic priest, uh, who believes that there are a thousand ways to God. And I opened the Bible, and I pulled this verse out, and I said, read it. How do you read it? Well, that's just your interpretation. You understand how Satan deceives people. That's my interpretation. The words are what the words say they are. All right? Uh, and so I would say to people, not just in this class, but across America, where, wherever this, this voice reaches, read your Bible. Ask God for wisdom. The Holy Spirit will open the door and teach you. And when you get that, when you understand that, you will get clarification immediately that there is only one way to God through Jesus Christ. I am astonished that evangelicals uh, who consider themselves evangelicals, who consider themselves born again, would be so mistaken, a majority of them. Uh, and that just makes me think that we are failing in our teaching we are failing in our preaching, that our churches are failing, that we're not delivering the message that, that God wants us, and I believe that's what God called me to do, and I will make certain that every day that I have breath in my lungs, I will continue to get this message out. There is only one way. Not your way, not your philosophy, not your works, not your winsome personality, not the fact that you sold everything that you had and went to India uh, and, 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 and moved in in a leper colony. None of that, none of that accounts for one bit of salvation other than the fact that you would accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. Amen? Amen. All right. Now, back to our regular lesson. We're in the Gospel of John. Uh, and uh, today we're going to talk about the thief on the cross, even though it's not found in the Gospel of John. We're going to refer to it in other readings. But just to start this session off, John chapter 19, uh, verse 13. And there you'll see as follows. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the stone pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of Passover week, about the sixth hour. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus, carrying his own cross. He went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Here they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side, and Jesus in the middle. And by the way, that middle cross was most likely uh, prepared for Barabbas. 
okay, was prepared for Barabbas. And theologians uh, have conjectured that the two thieves on both sides were probably aligned with Barabbas in these criminal acts. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened it to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. How appropriate that Pilate would would put that placard up. Uh, And so here it is. You see the whole events of Christ's life, of everything predetermined by God coming to a head. Uh, Pilate ultimately sentencing Jesus uh, to death. Uh, And that uh, clearly all of the powers of hell, all of of the obstacles that would try to keep Jesus from being crucified uh, fail. Uh, Yet this does not absolve Pilate of responsibility. I told you that does not absolve Pilate of responsibility. It does not absolve the uh, Jewish leaders of of, uh, responsibility. We talked about that last week, about judgment, the judgment of God. There is a judgment of God. Somebody asked me at the 11 o'clock last week when I said that there would be a judgment of God, well, what about Jesus who prayed, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. And I said, listen carefully to the prayer. Forgive them, they know not what they do. Though there were those there who specifically did know what they were doing or had imputed knowledge of what they were doing, meaning you could not have been a Bible elite person, a person who, who knew the scripture and, and walk away from any responsibility. You are responsible, just like we're responsible for what God has given us. Uh, And so Jesus had been accused of having made himself a king. So Pilate now asked, shall I crucify your king? And of course, their their hatred, the vitriol was so bitter uh, and that they yell out, yes, they wanted the blood of Jesus. They wanted him dead. And you understand, this is what happens when you go over to the dark side. Uh, And so as I say in the outline, the rejection of God and Jesus is not just a Jewish verdict. Verdict. Uh, and it's a verdict that applies to the entire. All right, I think we just came up. Now we're back on. All right. Uh, and so you, you see this. So, so you see this methodology of crucifixion. And I told you that the Romans had effectively invented crucifixion. There's some citation that maybe another culture did, but Ro- the Romans really used it on a regular basis, starting from about 100 BC. And so you see Jesus actually carrying the crossbar carrying the crossbar ultimately to the, to the point of where he will be crucified. And he's being led by a centurion who will be in charge of the, of the crucifixion uh, along with four other soldiers. And we know later that that, cruci- that centurion said this was a righteous man. This was a righteous man. And so one striking point significantly mentioned in the other gospels is this issue with the two thieves who are on both sides. And this is the, the uh, point of this lesson today. I want to talk to you about the thief who became effectively converted and received salvation at this moment in time. Uh, and this is a message of hope, uh, a message that, that cries out to us today, even 2,000 years later, to let us know how God will reach out even to the most desperate people in the most desperate times. Um, and so... Uh, I want you to to look, if you would, first to Matthew 27, verse 44. And look at verse 41 first. As you see the mocking tone of what they're doing to Jesus, 
In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. Can you imagine the blasphemy of this? Can you imagine the blasphemy and the evil? How, how significant and poignant the evil is here? Um, this is being uttered by the chief priest, the person who is most responsible for the direction of faith in Israel. Um, in, in the same way, the robbers who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Let's understand something. You know, we always talk about the good thief, right? I always like that expression, the good thief. Well, let me tell you something. The good thief's not so good at this point, is he? They're both hurling insults at Jesus. That's part of this understanding, all right? When we hear this story, both thieves are hurling insults at Jesus. Now, it's interesting. You would think you're hooked up to a cross and you're dying and you still have enough uh, strength to hurl insults at, at, at another person. Just, but you see evil, folks? You see the way evil takes over your life um, and the vituperation, the hatred that comes out from people? Um, and, so, and so we see this here. Uh, Luke even gives the words of one of the uh, thieves. Look, if you would, to Luke 23. And remember this. If you want to know how Luke probably knew this, Luke probably knew this because he interviewed uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus. All right? We know that he spent a lot of time with Mary, and so I'm convinced that Mary told him, told him this. Luke 23, verse 39. <laughs> One of the criminals who hung there hurls insults at, at him, at Jesus. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. How about that? Save yourself and us, as he hurled insults at him. And so suddenly, however, something amazing takes place at that cross. Uh, God begins to work in the heart of the one thief so that as his cursing died down, he fell to thinking and at last began to understand the truth about himself and Jesus. Now, I want to explain something to you because this tells you exactly how salvation works. You don't save yourself. You don't even have the strength to ask God to save yourself. It is the intervention of the Holy Spirit that allows you to reach up and ask God to save yourself. Can I get an amen on that? So what happens here is there's an introspection that takes place. Uh, and, and here we see the thief at some point suddenly reflecting on himself, looking at what he was, looking where he was, recognizing he was dying, seeing the man in the middle is no mere man, is something extraordinary, and at that moment of desperation, as he looks inwardly, God gives him the spirit to reach up and now ask to be saved. This is an extraordinary moment, extraordinary moment. Uh, and so he begins to think and understand the truth about himself and about Jesus. Earlier, just a minute or so earlier, he had been cursing. Uh, but now, now he turns to his companion and rebukes him from the evil things that the other thief had been saying. Uh, and he said, don't you fear God? 
since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. All right. The recognition uh, of God's justice. We're getting what we deserve. Don't you recognize that God is giving us what we deserve with this man in the middle? He has not deserved this. He is a righteous, holy man. And then he turns to Jesus and voices, I believe, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, his newfound faith. He says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. All right, what a great statement. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, the, the response of Jesus is, is most telling. And, and what I love about Jesus, you know, you hear Jesus, you know, Jesus doesn't say it's too bad. You waited too long. It's too bad. It's too long. It's too late. It's too late. If you had done it earlier, we could have had a baptism. No water. No baptism. You're not going to heaven. Okay? Uh, sure, you're looking now. Yeah, you're looking now. Sure. Because you know that's not a real faith. That's not a real conversion. Uh, but you don't see Jesus saying any of that because you see Jesus sees the heart. He sees the heart. And he recognized that in those words, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom, was a full confession of the power of God a recognition that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, a recognition that Jesus would rise from the dead, and a recognition that Jesus would sit on his throne in his kingdom. All of that, ladies and gentlemen, all of that in that simple one-sentence reply. And you know, I think about us in so many ways that when we try to bring uh, the faith of, of our Lord to people, we have a whole litany of things, right? You have, you know, I need you to do this. I need you to say this. I got to go down the Roman road. I want you to know this. Do you write? Well, none of that took place here. You understand? Do you see the simplicity of the gospel of Jesus Christ? I want to underscore this for you. Jesus, I believe you're God. Please remember me today when you're in your kingdom. Remember me, Lord. Uh, and God says yes, and, and the response of Jesus is, is incredible. Um, and, and look at Luke 23, verse 43. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. Amen, Lord Jesus. Today, today you will be with me in paradise. So now, theologically, that answers a lot of questions as well, doesn't it? Doesn't sound like there's any holding pen, does it? Doesn't sound like there's some place we're going to park ourselves till we work ourselves up to a, a, a state where we can get into heaven, all right? Focus on the Bible, listen to the Bible. Don't listen to what other people tell you in terms of their opinion. Rely on what scripture says. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Uh, and, and so it's incredible to me. And so in speaking to this thief, 2,000 years ago, Jesus is speaking to us today as well, uh, for he shows the way to be saved, uh, and he gives us assurance of salvation. If you wanted to know the guarantee of salvation, if you wanted to have that, if you were questioned, you have it right here, because here's Jesus dying on the cross, and yet in his last act, 
he turns to a person who has given himself to Jesus and guarantees to him that he'll be with paradise today. He tells you the same thing. That's your promise. You're going to be with Jesus as well uh, because you do that. And so the, the thief confesses openly. He confessed that he was a sinner and that he needed a savior. Uh, and at other times in his life, he might have tried to explain it away. You know, you get it another time. Well, I had, I had a bad mother and father. <laughs> I was poor. I came from bad circumstances. I had some bad people around me. Nobody ever encouraged me. Nobody took me to church. Can I keep going about all the excuses? Do you understand God doesn't want to hear your excuses? God doesn't want to hear your excuses. He, want to hear, he wants to hear your brokenness, your broken heart. And, and so the thief openly confessed that he needed a savior. Uh, and he recognized that he needed a savior. He confessed his sin and recognized the condemnation that he was due. You see all of this in that simple sentence. Um, uh, and he recognized that Jesus was the Savior, uh, and that he may not have been able to identify the, or explain the theology of justification. You understand? But you don't need to explain the theology of justification to be saved. Can I get an amen on that? All right, we teach it, I believe it, but let me say it clearly. You don't have to be able to identify it or, or understand it to know you're going with the Lord Jesus. All right, he couldn't do that. Uh, he knew that Jesus was the innocent son of God, uh, and he said it, this man has done nothing wrong, and he referred to the coming of Christ and his kingdom. Uh, and, and so finally, having recognized his need for a savior, and that Jesus was that Savior, he committed himself to him personally. And the Lord did remember him. Uh, and there was a guarantee that later that day, after Jesus had expired on the cross, and the thief expired on the cross, that they would be together uh, in paradise. Now, there are a number of lessons for us today from this experience on the cross, uh, and I want to bring them home to you. Uh, because I think we have a lot to learn. Uh, and honestly, one of the things as I've thought about this and prayed about it, the faith evidenced by that thief on the cross is a monument to Jesus Christ. The thief, the, that kind of faith ex expressed at that extreme moment of, of, of life impending death is, is a message to me that, that so many of us Christians need to focus on. Uh, and I want to focus on it first. And the first lesson, and I, I call this six lessons from the thief on the cross. The first lesson is hope, hope. Um, and what do I mean by that? Well, I mean by that, that here we know, this is a man who, who probably led a despicable life. For him to be sentenced to death on uh, like that, it was probably a very serious crime. We know it was probably robbery by force. Who knows if someone was killed in, the, in this act of violence, uh, but certainly enough to be tortured on the cross. Uh, and so this is a self-accused criminal, a person who accepts his responsibility, a despicable person. And so here's the question. As despicable as he was, as despicable as he was, God saves him. So what's the message? The message is, is this, ladies and gentlemen. There is no position that you have in life no person that you have in life that cannot be saved if they give their lives to Jesus Christ. Can I get an amen? No person, no position, no evil 
is so evil that it cannot be saved by Christ. Um, and, and so then we look at the lesson of conversion, and this is important. How do we see the lesson of conversion? Is it merely lip language? Is it merely, yes, Jesus, I believe you're Jesus? Or is it something more fundamental? And I would say it's much more fundamental. It's heart. Uh, we see a demonstration here of what true conversion involves. Um, and I think this is something we need to focus on. Uh, a significant change took place in this man as he hung between life and death. There was a significant change. Uh, and let's talk about those changes. These are the indicators of a changed life. First, he was not embarrassed to acknowledge his faith in God. What do you mean by that? Uh, he's here in this public uh, presentment with all these people there. They know what he was. They know what, light, what kind of life he is. And yet he's not embarrassed to recognize he needed God. All right? That's the first thing. The fact that we're not embarrassed that when we change and we give ourselves over to, to God and to Jesus Christ, we're not embarrassed by that. We do that publicly. And I tell you, that's one of the reasons why I like to see all of us pray when we go out to a restaurant, because we're showing that we, we've put God as a part of our regular living. And so he's not uh, embarrassed. He spoke of his reverence uh, for God. And also fear, the same thing. Uh, he confessed he was a sinner. Uh, and, and he was not proud of his sinfulness. Uh, as a result of that, he's repenting. You see, he, it's the self-recognition of how bad I am, of how needy I am, and the recognition that I need a Savior. He recognized the sinlessness of Jesus. He recognized the sinlessness. Now, this is all going on in minutes on the cross and you see this, he recognized that Jesus was sinless. Now, since only God is sinless, he had caught a glimpse of Christ's deity. Understand? And that's given him through the, through the Holy Spirit. Um, he spoke of Christ's kingdom, indicating that he recognized Jesus as king. Uh, and he asked Christ to grant him spiritual blessings, a prerogative generally reserved for God. You're asking someone to take care of you and to bring you into his kingdom? That's a recognition that Jesus Christ was God, that he had the authority and the power to do this. Uh, and isn't that amazing, folks? There was no major theological effort. Isn't this astonishing? And you see how God uh, saves the lost. What an, what an amazing story this is to me. And though his death was eminent, uh, he did not believe death was at the end. And I find that very interesting because there were people in the crowd who did believe death was the end. You know, the Sadducees didn't believe that there was a life thereafter. The Pharisees did, but the Sadducees didn't. And they were the religious elite. Here's a guy dying on the cross, a criminal, yet he recognizes that there is some life after death. And so his words clearly imply uh, a resurrection. They express a faith, expressive faith. Uh, uh, beyond this life. And so what factors, folks, what factors brought about this change? Uh, he may have known something about Jesus before he got to the cross. He may have been talking about him. Uh, but, but what you see is the anointing of the Holy Spirit, the conviction of sin. Uh, and, and what I've learned from this is that sometimes we, when we teach people uh, about Jesus, we try to convince them instead of converting them. 
We try to convince them. I'll make a very powerful argument instead of understanding it's through the Holy Spirit that you're converted, all right, that your heart is touched. Uh, and so we have to understand we don't convert anybody, all right? We don't save anybody. All we do, all we do is bring the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we've been guilty, many of us, of teaching too little and persuading too much. And so I would say we need to go back and rethink how we do that. Um, and, and we can take the lesson in conversion even a step farther. Uh, because of the change that took place at that moment in the man's attitude and his actions, a change occurred in his relationship with God. In that moment, what a change. Uh, that morning, the thief had struggled with a cross coming up to Calvary. Within a couple of hours, he'd be in heaven with Jesus Christ. Can you imagine this life-changing moment? Well, all the pain and the agony and the suffering of crucifixion would be taken away, and within a couple hours, he'd be strolling in paradise with Jesus uh, because of the love of God. Now, there's other lessons that we can draw from this as well. Uh, there's a lesson in courage, and I think this is important for us also. You know, um, there are many of us who have come to faith in large church services, all right? And we have music, and we have people praying, and the elements are perfect, all right? And yet, and, and yet how many times do you hear pastors call people forward to uh, give their hearts to Christ in these incredible settings, and nobody moves forward, is it that there are nobody there that needs to make a commitment to Christ? I don't believe so, frankly. We don't have the courage to step up and walk forward. Well, let me tell you something about courage. The day is going to come after the rapture when the church is out of this world and the remnant is left and there, aren't, there isn't going to be any organ music. There isn't going to be any crusades. You got that? And there's going to come a time when in order to live and to buy and to exist, you're going to have to take a mark because you're not going to be able to live in this world without that mark. Are you going to have the courage at that point in time to refuse the mark, knowing that if you take the mark, you're damned forever? You understand that's clear from, from the word. You're damned forever. Are you going to have the courage, and yet you see the importance of courage as it comes to accepting the gospel of Jesus Christ? Uh, and so somebody might say, well, this guy didn't have much to lose. He was ready to die. Uh, but, but I mean, think about it. Do you, how many of us, when we're in pain, when we're in suffering, when we're in distress, really can focus and still step up and remove ourselves and make those decisions? Uh, he took the risk of, of angering the mob. It didn't matter. You know, it's easy to speak with, about Jesus when we're surrounded by fellow believers. You know, it's easy to speak about Jesus when we're surrounded by fellow believers, but the day will come when we're not surrounded by believers, when we're surrounded by foul mouth blasphemers. That day will come. Are you ready for that? Are you ready to stand tall for Jesus even during those periods of time? And the thief on the cross gives us this example. Um, a faith that confesses Jesus only to smiling believers is not much of a faith. All you can talk about Jesus is to people that love you and embrace you and smile, and it's a church setting, and you're comfortable talking about Jesus. Well, folks, let me, let me break it to you. 
That's not much of a faith. But to talk about Jesus to those people who need to hear about Jesus, who are angry, who are full of sin uh, and full of rejection, that's what God wants us to do. And that requires courage. That requires courage. And so we ask God to give us courage to step up and to do that at that moment and to have that kind of faith. Um, and so you can just see Jesus on the cross. And in my mind's eye, as I prayed about this, you know, and I reflect on it, I can see the thief turning to Jesus and saying to Jesus, as Jesus is dying, uh, uh, Lord, remember me today in your kingdom. And I can see Jesus actually turning his head, actually turning his head um, to speak to him and to look at him one more time, one more person, one more soul, one more effort to bring someone back into the kingdom of God as he, Jesus expends the, the very essence of his life in this human body that he will finally give up. Um, and, and I want you to look, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 4 as we bring this to a close. Hebrews chapter 4. And we're going to continue this next week. Uh, beginning in verse 13, actually 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirits, joint and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Nothing is hidden. He sees your heart. He sees your thoughts. He understands the purpose in your heart. And that is what he looks for. And that is true conversion. And this is what God is calling us to do. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, I thank you for this lesson. I thank you for this picture of this thief who gave himself to you, Lord, and how in your unbelievable act of love and the Father's act of love, you saved him. What an example this is for us today, Lord, knowing that this is how salvation works. It's not our righteousness. It's not our works. It's merely bowing in submission before the throne of God and recognizing who you are. Lord, give us the courage to leave here today and give this message to a lost world. Give us the chance to have the kind of faith that you want us to have, Lord. Lift us up so that we can do this in every way. Bless our people. Protect them this week and bring them back safely to continue the study of your word next week. We put all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. God bless you all.